Good morning. Welcome to Northfield Christian. Glad you chose to worship with us today. Uh, today we are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're actually getting closer to the end than the beginning, and uh, we're going to follow up. Last week, Don preached on uh, Judge Not That You Should Be Judged, and we're simply going to pick the text up um, uh, there on prayer. And just v- real quick, speaking on prayer, Tim prayed for the persecuted church. I heard on the radio this week there's a stat. Of all the Christians on the planet, one in seven are in a persecuted church. One in seven. We don't feel that here in America, do we? One in seven of our brothers and sisters are being persecuted for their faith. Sorry. Before we get into God's word, let's pause for a moment of prayer. Father God, we acknowledge you as our father, as the good father. We acknowledge you as the teacher. And as our, as our mind looks, imagines the Sermon on the Mount as us sitting in the audience today and and longing, straining to hear your words, perhaps, um, but looking into your face. God, put that picture into my mind, into each one of our minds, that we can be intent on listening to your words this morning. God, as, as a whole, we lift up um, our brother Rick, just that uh, he is available for you to be the conduit today. May that conduit be clear. May it be Um, may it just speak your words into our hearts as each one of us makes way the kingdom of God into my soul. Let's put everything aside. Let's acknowledge you, God, your great love for us and your desire to teach us today. Thanks, God. Amen. Thank you. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew 7, 7 through 14. It is page 812 in your pew Bible or your electronic device or wherever. I'll give you a moment to pull up that and then we'll read the text together. So I'm going to read all the verses. It's really kind of, um, there's kind of in my brain at least two breaks in here, um, but we're going to read all the verses together here. So again, that's Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Okay, so a fairly common scripture passage, you've probably heard it read before, ask, seek, knock. And here's the beauty of it. You get it. Ask, seek, knock, and you get it. This is the prosperity gospel. We have it absolutely perfectly. Although I don't think the Powerball players got their wish last night, did they? Uh, I know I didn't win because nobody won. Ask, seek, knock. We have the prosperity gospel right here in Scripture. You don't need to go anywhere else for it. And this is where I think some people get it. Is it that simple? Is that what Jesus is trying to convey? He compares us our earth, as earthly parents, as earthly fathers. We are evil, he says, which we are. We have an inherent sin nature. But I like to give my daughters good gifts. 
And I like to bless them. And all of us parents do, right? Within reason, do we give them everything they want? No, we don't. But do we like to give our daughters good gifts? Absolutely. Uh, I've been on Amazon. I've got some Christmas boxes already at home. It's fantastic. So how much more then will God give, right? Is it that easy? So let's slow down here. And right, that's my forte. All of us that are up here, we have our certain character traits. And, and mine is, you know, generally a, a very slow and, and deliberate and, and, and methodical approach. So, so let's, slow, let's slow down here. And I really do want to do that. And I want to get into the weeds here. And, and I'm going to take some time. If those of you that are note takers, um, they're, breaking, they're broken down in the, uh, in the bulletin. Um, I spaced it out two-thirds on prayer, a third on the golden rule, and a third on uh, the gates. But truthfully, we are going to spend the, virtually our entire time talking today about prayer. And I want to slow down here. And um, I just want to look at it maybe from a different angle. Uh, and I'm going to put my clicker down here for a moment. And my question here is, is God really sovereign? Is God really sovereign? In Job, a couple, three, four chapters there, Job and God are having a discussion. And God says to Job, where were you? Where were you when I told the ocean, you come this far and not any further? God says to Job, where were you when I hung the stars in their place and named them? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you, Job, when I created everything? Didn't we make a new telescope now and we are seeing galaxies further than we've ever seen them before? Who put those there? God put those there. A sovereign God put those there. We read Jeremiah 1, 5 through 7. In your mother's womb, I knew you, and I formed you. And that is a fantastic verse. And we can all internalize that to know that God knows us individually. 7.837 billion people on the planet, approximately. 7.837 billion. And God knows them all. He formed them all. Are you good with faces and names? God knows 7.837 billion. God is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is. Some commentators would tell you there's a hundred different verses that in various contexts reference Jesus being at the beginning and the end. Revelation 1.8 simply says he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is before time. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. God and Jesus were there before. And how long is eternity? Afterwards is forever. Jesus, God, is the Alpha and the Omega. Is he sovereign? John 1.3, Colossians 1.16. In him, all things have their being. Not just the eight billion people on the planet. The grass, a deer, a hummingbird, this world rotating on its axis. In him and through him all things were created and all things have their being. Is God sovereign? And Moses, when he was going to challenge Pharaoh, God's, Moses says to God, who should I tell him I'm coming on behalf of? And God says, you tell him, I am. 
all-encompassing. I am. And Jesus, when he got in a lot of trouble with the Pharisees and they're questioning who he was, and Jesus simply says, I am. I am. It's a self-encompassing. It is God in and of himself. He needs nothing else. He is. I am. Is God sovereign? We read earlier in Matthew 6, 8, I don't know who preached on it, that God knows what you need before you ask for it. Is he sovereign? In Daniel, we see in Daniel 7, a couple, three different times, God is referred to as the ancient of days. The judge. We see that judgment thrown. Daniel's getting a picture into Revelation. The ancient of days. The judge of all. Is God sovereign? In Philippians 1, we read that every knee shall bow. Most? No. Some? No. Only the Christians? No. Every knee shall bow. Is God sovereign? I could spend more time up here. I propose to you, at least in my brain, God most certainly is sovereign. So my next question, can I change his mind? Psalm 8 says, who is man that you are mindful of him? Who is man that you are mindful of him, a sovereign God? Isaiah 40 says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You will die. I tell you right now, there's not too many blanket, absolute, unequivocal statements you can make from the pulpit that absolutely can, no one can refute. I'm telling you right now, you will die. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed once for man to die. If you want to throw at me Enoch and Elijah, I tell you I believe we're going to see them again in Revelation. They will die. You will die. Who am I to change God's mind? Jeremiah 17.9, the condition of my heart And sorry to be the bearer of bad news if you're not aware of it. The condition of yours, your heart, is desperately wicked. Isaiah 55.8 says that God's ways are higher than mine. And I'm not talking on a small scale. God's ways are higher than mine. In Exodus 33, Moses had an opportunity to see God, but he could not see God's face. Why? God turned his back because no one can see God's face and live. So who am I? Is it not a little bit arrogant or presumptuous of me to suggest the all-knowing sovereign creator of the world? Well, I I can offer him some data or or some intelligence that he didn't have prior. I I can inform him, God, hey, you know, maybe you didn't know this. God said, oh. Man, Rick, that, that's, you're right. You're, you're right. I, I didn't know that, and, and I'm going to execute a different course of action as a result. Thank, thank you for pointing that out. The all-knowing creator of the world doesn't know what I mean. You know, God's just like, hey, I could really use that. God's like, oh, I, I didn't know you were thinking that, Rick. Or I didn't know you needed that. You, you're right. I, I, I'm going to give that to you. That's great. Or in, it's just, it's, you know, hindsight on earth is 2020, right? We make decisions And then we think, well, I would have made a different decision had I known that. Had I had more data, had I had all the facts, had I known how it would come out. We really think we can offer God 
some form of information, any kind of anything that he doesn't know already? I suggest to you that no, you cannot change God's mind. Some of you might see I wrote up Abraham and Jacob. There's some people that would suggest in Scripture maybe people had some success with that. I don't think you're interpreting those Scriptures correctly. But I wanted to get into the weeds today and ask some tough questions. Maybe to my peril, but I did. So I've painted myself in a corner now, right? Why should I pray? If God is sovereign and everything's preordained and he knows everything, and I have no ability to change his mind, then why should I pray? So the guy on stage has totally painted himself in a corner. Well, first off, and very simply, it's a command. It's a command all through scripture to pray. But it's a command without consequence, isn't it? You know, we have the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't murder, honor your your parents. You get caught doing any of those things, there's consequences on earth, right? It's not good. What's the consequence for not praying? And secondly, who is ever going to know? Ever, if you don't pray. On earth, it's a command without consequence. But really, what is Jesus saying? Back to the text. Jesus, in the verb tense that he is using in this text, to back to it, he is saying, keep on praying. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. It is not a singular verb tense. It's not once at the beginning, hey, pray it once and you're done. It's not once at the end, just pray it at the end. Jesus is using, and it doesn't come through in English, and I don't know if I'm communicating it correctly. Jesus is using an active verb tense in the original text. Keep on asking. Keep on pray, uh, seeking. Keep on knocking. Sometimes it's easier for me to understand what something isn't to have a better idea of what something is. Does that make sense? So what prayer is not? I don't remember much from Philosophy 103 in my sophomore year at University of Toronto. That was a few years ago. But I remember a hypothetical syllogism. Everybody know what that is? There it is. I'm not going to read it. A hypothetical syllogism, I'll boil it down to you very simply, is if-then. It's an if-then statement. So what prayer is not? God, if you do this, then I will stop doing that. God, if you do this, then I will start doing this. God, if you don't, or if you let this pass over me and it doesn't happen, then I will start doing this. God, if you let this pass over, then I will stop doing that. Prayer is not if then. It's not a bartering session with God. And you say to yourself, Rick, that's a very rudimentary, infantile approach to prayer. And I would suggest it is. And I'll ask you very simply, look at your own prayer life. Do you, if, then, God? Do you, if, then, God? And you say, again, that's really infantile. That's got to be a very immature Christian. How about this? God, I've been at this Christianity stuff for 30-something years. I've been pretty good. I don't ask you for much. Can you just do X? Do you, if, then, God? Prayer is now, right? Prayer is 
Prayer is a privilege, ultimately. It is absolutely a privilege. It is not prayer. We have the privilege, the luxury, the joy, the right to access the sovereign God. And earlier, Doug preached in this series in the Sermon on the Mount, what is the first line in the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. Into whose presence are we coming when we pray? Into the presence of a holy, sovereign God. What a privilege. What a blessing it is for us that we even have this opportunity. And God wants it. He wants us to prayer. He craves that relationship with us. He wants us to talk to him. Prayer is a privilege. And prayer is for you. Prayer is for us. God doesn't need our prayers. That might sound cold and callous, but he does not. He knows what we need before we pray. He does not need them, but he wants them. And he wants that relationship with us. He wants us to pour our heart to him. But prayer ultimately is for you. It is for us. And prayer is about your needs. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about your heart. I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again today. Prayer is about your needs and it's your heart. It's about you pouring out yourself to God. Everything. Your deepest thing to you. A, a relationship deeper it can be than your spouse. Prayer is about pouring out your needs, your heart to God. He wants to hear it. He wants you to do that. He wants that communication avenue open with you and he, who is he, the creator of the universe? Hallowed be his name. And prayer, prayer changes you. Prayer changes you. I think back, those of you that don't know, we have two daughters, um, both grown um, just barely out of the house. We're Recent empty nesters, um, we haven't had the influx of boredom and uh, looking at each other wondering what to do with life yet. We're hoping that comes soon, but it seems like we've been very busy thus far in our empty nest phase. Um, but when I look back on, on my prayer life as, it, as it's related to my girls, of course, um, pray for health. I mean, that's the number one thing, right, when, when you're when pregnant and expecting a child and then Nothing wrong with praying the American dream, and I've prayed that for my girls. That, you know, they live a, a good, healthy life and marry a godly husband and, and you know, live the life I'm living, the life I have a luxury of living, the, the American dream. And as years have gone on, I've increasingly, of course, we've prayed for godly spouses for our kids. Um, that hasn't happened yet, and as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't need to. They can still be my daddy's, do- daddy's girls. Um, but as I've grown in my prayer life, it's increasingly been a lot more um, spiritual prayers for my kids. And it's just, can they be filled with the measure of Christ? And, and it's not so much the earthly or temporal things that I'm praying for. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the life we're living in Tremont. But lately, uh, those of you that know, again, um, both of my girls have spent, uh, or one currently is spending uh, some time at a missions training school. Tress has already done that, and uh, that's, yeah, I knew I was going to break a little here. That's impacted my family. Um, Well, Beth has always had a heart for missions, but it's really impacted me more, because now my prayers for my girls are really, I, I just simply pray, God, can they seek your glory? And I just stop. And I don't want to pray that prayer, because 
I want. I want the white picket fence. I want a grandson. I'll take a granddaughter, but I want a grandson, and I want to teach him how to skate and play hockey. And I want him here in Tremont. Well, maybe, well, anyways, that's what I want. I don't want that prayer of just giving up all that control to God. And I just simply pray now, God, can they seek your glory? Because that's all it is. If we really believe this, if we really believe it, we can ask those people in the persecuted church, what else is there? There is nothing else. What else is there other than to seek God's glory? Prayer changes you. And yes, you're reading that right. Pray what you don't want to pray. Sounds a little irreligious or sacrilegious. Well, I just gave you one example. I'm going to give you another. Uh, A few weeks ago, some guy preached up here about being angry. You know, my best antidote is when I'm angry at someone is to pray for them. But I'll be very candid and forthright. Here's how that prayer works. God, can you bless so-and-so? And the very next line out of my mouth is, you know I didn't mean that prayer. And the next line out of my mouth is, God, can you make me mean it? Can you make me mean it? If you've been hurt deeply on earth, seek counseling, do all of that stuff. I'm not saying you won't, but add prayer to it. God, can you bless so-and-so? Can you prosper their marriage? Can you give them favor in your eyes? God, I don't mean that prayer. Can you make me mean it? Prayer works, if you remember absolutely nothing else from today. Two words, prayer works. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, is James 5, 17. And I can't fully understand it and explain it. I can't fully understand God's sovereignty and my inability to change his mind, but I can tell you definitively, prayer works. You hear it up here virtually every Sunday. You read it in books. Why do we pray for the persecuted church? Because they need our prayers, because it works. I don't understand all of the finite ways, the infinite ways, more accurately, of it. But the bottom line is prayer works. And it's about silence, and it's about peace, and it's about solitude. Brady mentioned last week that example of Mother Teresa, and I love that. One thing I do if I'm on my game in my prayer life, most nights of the week, at the end of the day, I say to God in my office, say, God, how do we do today? And then I shut up and listen. God, how do we do today? And then I'm quiet, because that's his time to reveal to me how we did today. Sometimes it's an issue of repentance, and God says, you didn't do so well here. You need to repent. Sometimes I can handle that in my office. Sometimes I need to seek out repentance. But how did we do today? And then you have to listen. Prayer is a lot of communication with God, but prayer is a ton of listening to God in quiet and in solitude. Pray and then listen. Prayer is about your relationship with God. How good is it? And how frequent is it? I will close with this. Prayer is all ultimately about trust. It just boils right down to trust. I say that 
Jesus in the garden. Under turmoil, no human's ever gone through. Sweating drops of blood. He is praying that much. Lord, if it's possible, can this cup pass over me? What is he asking for? Is he afraid of the cross? Is he afraid of the flogging? Is he afraid of the physical abuse that's coming his way in the next 24 hours? Yes. What do I think Jesus is really asking to get passed over? Jesus is about to get the cup of God's wrath. He is about to get my sin on his shoulders. Your sin on his shoulders. Hitler on his shoulders. Jeffrey Dahmer on his shoulders. Every sin ever committed on earth is about to be on Jesus' shoulders. And what does he pray? God, I don't want that. Can this pass over me? But your will be done. I trust you, God. When you give something to God in prayer, it is ultimately about trust. Do you trust God? The cup didn't pass over Jesus. Thank you, goodness. That's why we're here. But prayer is about trust. It's about our trust in God. I'll leave you read this quote. It's the last thing I'll say on prayer. I lied. I'll say one more thing on prayer. You want to increase your chances of meeting a prayer warrior? They're not young, virile, Navy SEAL men. You want to increase your chances of meeting a prayer warrior? Talk to a widow. Prayer. We're going to change gears now. We're going to go through the next couple things fairly quickly. Let's reread the verse. I'm picking it up in chapter 7, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Better known as the golden rule, right? We know this one. Not a whole lot here, right? Is there? So the scribes and the Pharisees practice something called negative goodness. What is negative goodness? The scribes and the Pharisees preached and practiced. They were good. Why? Because of what they didn't do. They didn't lie. They didn't cheat. They didn't steal. They didn't murder. They didn't break the law. They were good because what they didn't do. It's a valid argument. Which is easier? The scribes and the Pharisees being good for what you don't do or what Jesus just said? Jesus sets the standard exceedingly higher. Jesus is here hitting again the heart. It's not about what you don't do. It's about what you do. This righteousness theme, I didn't have time to push it just here in the, in the notes, just is flowing through this, these three passages today that we're reading. It's about your heart. So what is it? Jesus says, be a blessing. Be a blessing. Be generous. Well, I pay my fair share. Okay, that's good. Jesus says, be generous. Jesus says, be encouraging. Well, I don't talk bad about that person. Okay, that's good. You ever said anything nice to him? Jesus says, be sympathetic. Well, they've got family and friends to come around them. Jesus says, be sympathetic. I don't need to talk to them. Jesus says, be unifying. Well, I don't divide. I don't gossip. I don't say bad things about other people. Well, good. Do you try and unify? Do you try and seek common ground? 
Do good. Jesus says, be kind. Well, I've never done anything wrong to them. Good. But Jesus says, be kind. Do good. Do to others what you want. This next one's a tap-in putt for me. Be patient. Are you kidding? Well, I've never been rude to them. I've never been curt. I've never been short. Be patient. Be deliberate. Be intentional. Seek people out. Do these things to people. You're not good because of what you don't do. Jesus says do to others what you want them to do to you. It's an exceedingly higher bar than just not doing something. Do to others what you want them to do to you. We'll tackle the gates now. I'm going to reread the text. It is verses 13 and 14. It's really a gear change here. I had trouble weaving this in. Um, It's probably a new chapter or a, a title heading in your Bible. The narrow and wide gates. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. The gates. So Jesus is now, in my brain at least, conclude, he's beginning his wrap-up of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with four two-bys. There, there's four two-bys. Here we have the two gates today. Um, and notice, the gate is the entry point. This isn't the pearly gate at the end with Peter and all the jokes, right? The gate here is the entry point. There is a road that follows the gate. And we see the theme of righteousness flowing through here again. Notice on the road um, that there's not interchanges and there's not last minute exit ramps. You're not jumping from the narrow road to the broad road, the narrow road to the broad road. You're on one for a little while, then you get on the other. You're on one, you're going to get on the other. Ultimately, if you're on the broad road, only through Jesus can we get on the narrow. I want to get there. The roads. The narrow road isn't necessarily straight, right? We talk about that. That's kind of Christian vernacular or maybe the world looking at us, right? Well, he's on the straight and narrow. It doesn't say it here. The narrow road isn't straight, not necessarily. The narrow road has winds and twists and turns. That doesn't mean it's not narrow. In fact, the word here used, I can't quote the Greek, but the word here that Jesus references to the narrow road is it's tough. It actually is a different word, used same verb tense. Let's talk about tribulation and persecution. The narrow road is tough. The other road is broad and wide, and there's lots of people on it. And the narrow road has twists and turns, and it's tough. But notice, there's only one destination at the end of each road. You know, the world, popular culture will tell you, well, there's lots of ways to God. Where God is loving, there's no way he would actually execute or mete out his judgment at the end. Well, that contradicts scripture. Jesus says right here, the broad road leads to destruction. That's not a good ending. However the world wants to twist it, that's not a good ending. The narrow road leads to life. A quick summation of what we talked about today. Choose the road to life. Choose the narrow road. 
If you need to, someone to talk to you about that, uh, I'm available afterwards. There's other people here that would love to talk to you about how you get on the narrow road. It's only through Jesus, if I haven't made that clear today. It's only through Jesus that we can get to life. And be, be a blessing. Be a blessing. And keep on asking. Keep on praying. Keep on knocking. Pray. Pray, folks. Pray early. Pray often. And pray late. Pray without ceasing. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on praying. And why? I can't tell you exactly how. But I can tell you that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Much. God bless.